Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. Ahead, two powerful testimonies from people who've been affected by modern slavery and exploitation. First, though, to a major push for governments to tackle this scourge, which now entraps 50 million people around the world. This week, the New South Wales anti-slavery commissioner, James Cocaine, will unveil a plan to combat human trafficking in his state. You'll hear more soon. But the Commonwealth Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, wants the federal government to introduce tough penalties for companies that use exploited labour in their supply chains. Uh, Lorraine, welcome. Uh, What are the basic numbers first? They're actually quite shocking because we had the Walk Free Global Slavery Index released and it takes a snapshot around the world of what the estimated numbers around modern slavery are and it showed that On any given day in 2021, it was estimated there were 50 million people around the world living in modern slavery. And in Australia, we can't say this isn't a problem that doesn't affect us because it was estimated that 41,000 people in Australia every day are affected by modern slavery. And if we look then beyond the numbers of people and look at the economic impact, it was further estimated that Australians are actually importing US $17.4 billion worth of products that are at risk of being produced with forced labour. So it really does show that this is a global problem, but it's a problem that Australia is directly contributing to and one that we really need to address. Yeah, they're very powerful figures, Lorraine. Where do we find these 41,000 people in Australia alone being exploited? What are they doing? How are they being exploited? Is it in farms? Is it in households? Well, it's a whole range of things. So modern slavery is a term that encompasses a whole range of exploitative behaviours. So it's everything from forced labour, debt bondage, sexual servitude, forced marriage... And unfortunately, we do see examples of all of those in Australia as well as around the world. You have considerable international experience working in this area. Can you take a stab at explaining how in just five years the number of people around the world suffering modern slavery has gone from 40 million to 50 million? It's absolutely shocking, isn't it? And what's even worse is to realise that across that time, there's been considerable effort around the world and in countries like Australia to pass laws, run programs, to really try and find solutions to this problem. So unfortunately, I don't think we're doing enough and what we're doing isn't working quickly enough. And I guess one of the factors which has clearly happened in the past few years and that undoubtedly has had a huge impact is the COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact that those deteriorating economic conditions around the world, both due to COVID and also other events, have really tipped a huge number of people around the world into positions of vulnerability. Yeah, we have been patting ourselves on the back for the past five years because we do have Commonwealth modern slavery legislation. But you seem to be, well, not opposed to it. In fact, you're very in favour of it, but you're a little bit of a sceptic as to what it's achieving. Why? Why the scepticism, Lorraine? 
Well, I'm certainly not opposed to it. And I think it was absolutely critical that Australia passed these laws when we did. And we're world leaders in this regard. We were the second country in the world to pass national modern slavery laws. And in fact, we were the first country in the world to introduce a public online repository for modern slavery statement. But look, for example, to the recent statutory review into Australia's Modern Slavery Act that was conducted and led by Professor John McMillan. He actually found that a view widely expressed during that review was that there's not yet any clear story that the Modern Slavery Act has successfully combated any of the drivers of modern slavery. So I would say the Act is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle, but there's more that we need to do if we're actually going to stop slavery from occurring. You at the Human Rights Commission contributed to Professor John McMillan's review. Did I read where he said that this act had not caused any meaningful improvement for people in Australia who are enduring modern slavery? Well, certainly the evidence that came through the review was that it's not done nearly enough and that the actual impact on the ground, well, the evidence isn't really clear. And part of that is there are a number of weaknesses in the Act in terms of what it actually requires. So the Act itself could be strengthened and both the submission made by the Human Rights Commission and indeed the final recommendations made by Professor McMillan in his report have put forward a number of recommendations that are now being considered by government to strengthen the Act. But the other important thing to remember is the Modern Slavery Act looks at business responses to modern slavery. And we also need to think about, for example, our criminal responses to offences around, for example, human trafficking and slavery. And the Modern Slavery Act itself is, again, only one part of the response. I'm looking at Professor McMillan's report now, Lorraine. Am I reading this correctly, that there are basically no substantive penalties for businesses that use modern slavery? Well, there are no substantive penalties for businesses that fail to meet the reporting requirements under the Act. And that's what the Act is. It's a reporting mechanism, effectively, that requires businesses to report on their supply chains and on the measures that they're taking under their supply chains to identify modern slavery risks. And that's one of the recommendations that Professor McMillan has made in his report, that there should actually be penalties for non-compliance introduced into the Modern Slavery Act, and in fact, that it should go one step further and require businesses not only to report on what they're doing, but to actually have a due diligence system in place that means they have to take proactive steps to try and eradicate modern slavery from their supply chains. I've read that there are concerns that um, with the production of solar panels, which are very important in transforming the economy. Um, But I I read where there are some concerns about human exploitation. What do you understand to be the case there, Lorraine? It is one of the tricky things when it comes to human rights, that oftentimes we have to think about how different rights may conflict with each other or how behaviours or activities in one area may impact on another. And this is one example where there have been significant concerns raised in relation to the production of products, for example, from the Xinjiang province, where there are claims of forced labour and where supply chains are highly vulnerable to modern slavery. When companies are trying to do the right thing in terms of renewables and climate change, which is incredibly important, They also need to make sure that they're not creating another problem in terms of 
encouraging modern slavery or contributing to modern slavery. So it really is about recognising that, you know, human right issues don't exist in silos, that we actually need to think about intersections between different issues and how our actions on the one hand may actually come with good intentions but may exacerbate problems on the other. I know you're the Human Rights Commissioner and you're not running the Reserve Bank or the Treasury, but I mean, would we be better able to monitor the working conditions of people if things like uh, these solar panels were produced in Australia? I'm certainly not running the economy, but it (laughs) won't surprise you to hear the Human Rights Commissioner say that I think human rights should be part of all of the conversations we have in terms of our economy, the products we produce, the products we source, and just every aspect of our day-to-day lives. Now, at the end of the day, the economy doesn't exist for its own sake. It actually exists to better our lives. And so human rights are a core part of that. Just finally, Lorraine, the Human Rights Commission has also made another very important submission, this time to the UN Special Rapporteur on Modern Slavery. It deals with the way technology is contributing to modern slavery and human trafficking. What are your concerns? Well, in terms of technology and modern slavery, we really need to be aware of the different ways that technologies can be used to exacerbate vulnerabilities, contribute to modern slavery and put people in positions where they can be easily exploited. And whether that's through, for example, labour force exploitation through cyber scams, which we're seeing in some parts of our region, or whether that be through the absolute proliferation of child online exploitation around the world, technology is being used to drive modern slavery, to create new victims and to actually give perpetrators a new way of committing the crimes that they commit. And it's something we really need to think about, both in terms of what we can do to respond, but also to think about how we can actually use technology to strengthen human rights and to combat modern slavery. So the submission that we put into the UN Special Rapporteur was all about how do we use technology to stop modern slavery? but also how do we make sure technology doesn't further contribute to it. And I was really pleased to see the US Trafficking in Persons report, which is a report done by the US State Department that was just released a few days ago, highlighted the role of technology as being a really significant issue that we need to think about in terms of modern slavery and helping to combat modern slavery into the future. I mean, how much did the pandemic, by the way, and the resort to everything being online contribute to this sexual exploitation of of women and, and children? Again, and the important thing to realise is people tend to have this idea that when things happen online, they're not happening in real life. We're talking about real victims here. And it it is absolutely repulsive and something we should be working incredibly hard to combat. And there were two things that really happened during the pandemic. The first was the shift to so many things online, which was significant. But the second is the deteriorating economic circumstances that so many people found themselves in, which increased vulnerability. And we know that when people are vulnerable, either economically or socially in terms of social isolation, they're more likely to become victims of trafficking and they're more likely to be in a position where they can be exploited. Yeah, really important to speak with you. Lorraine Finlay, Federal Human Rights Commissioner and a very strong advocate in this area of combating modern slavery. Thanks for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report, Lorraine. 
Thank you so much for having me. And it's really fantastic to be able to talk about what is such an important issue. Now, as part of the New South Wales effort, Anti-Slavery Commissioner James Cocaine will release a three-year plan to combat trafficking. His state has an estimated 16,000 people in forced labour. His plan involves removing the products of modern slavery from government supply chains. It will also highlight the personal stories of people around the world who've survived exploitation. One of the most prominent is Sophie Etienne from Kenya. She was taken from her family at just 13, put to work and denied the education promised by her uncle. She now runs the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery in Nairobi. She joined me before leaving for Australia. It's quite common, right? If you look at the recent Global Slavery Index that just came out, speaks about the numbers increasing as far as the people that we are seeing in modern slavery and specifically women and girls. And my stories of being affected by this issue when I was quite young. So it's not an uncommon story. What are the social conditions that lead people to being trapped in modern slavery in East Africa in particular? The main issue is inequality. Whether you are talking about economic or you are talking about gender here, they come from significantly marginalised communities that don't have money, that don't have education, that don't have access to social protection, social issues that just make them make risky decisions. So, for example, if a girl comes from a very poor family, right, and they don't have access to education, it's very easy for someone to take advantage of that and recruit them or use them for labor or use them for sex. If you talk about the fact that this issue also affects mainly women and girls, it's important for us to talk about gender equality. Why are women and girls more vulnerable to this? Why are migrant communities more vulnerable to this issue? So the main reason is that traffickers and essentially the system targets the most marginalized in the community and basically uses them. But this issue affects and impacts all of us. We have a global economy that is really focused on labor and that labor has to come from somewhere, Mm. you know. And again, if you're talking about East Africa specifically, have to talk about things like female genital mutilation, early marriage, forced marriage that basically make it happen. Well, let's talk about those because they're very, very significant problems. You mentioned their female genital mutilation, forced marriage. At what ages are young girls being co-opted into forced marriages? I think it's mainly as soon as girls become teenage girls between the ages of, say, 13 and and 18. That's around the age that most people uh, enter this. And it's mainly because these are practices that have existed before, right? They're practices that, you know, are harmful and we know affect children and, and specifically girls. In your case, I think you were promised an education and your uncle promised you an education and that's ultimately how you did end up in forced labour by being taken away and not getting that education. The education system in Nairobi where you were a child, was it simply not available? By the time this was happening to me, there wasn't free education, right? Right now, There was not free education? 
there was no free education by the time this was happening to me. But right now there is free education and we've seen significantly it's way easier to identify cases as a result of free primary education. By the time this was happening to me, there was no free education. And it's the reason why it was quite easy for this to happen to me because my family was poor and I needed to have an education. The promise of education was important, especially when it was coming from someone that we trusted. There's one area that will, I think, surprise a lot of people because they will not see it as a form of modern slavery or forced labour. But why are you so concerned about this uh, huge growth of orphanages, especially in Africa? You think there's a problem here. Why is that? Again, I go back to orphanages exist to take care of a very specific problem, which is children who don't have families. And the problem right now is that in some cases, orphanages have existed where poor children who are not orphans are recruited into orphanages and then used for forced labor. In some cases, we've seen them not just being used for forced labor, but also for sex. So I think it's important to understand that so long as we have vulnerable children, criminals are going to use all forms of system to abuse people. There's been a high influx of orphanages in the past. Is it as a result of parents dying? Not necessarily. And then when you think about the culture that we come from, like personally, I come from a culture where if a family member dies, the whole community takes care of that child. When we introduce things like orphanages, sometimes apart from even just what they do right now in terms of abusing children in some cases, we are destroying like certain social structures that existed that were sustainable and were healthy and the ability to take care of those children. There's been a lot of research on the impact of children staying in institutions versus children staying in communities with families. It's just something we need to rethink. In Kenya, we've had several cases where pedophiles have ended up running orphanages. But Sophie, as I understand it, even where there isn't a case of obvious exploitation or sexual abuse or something dreadful like that, isn't there a problem that orphanages rely on having what appears to be vulnerable children to attract donors? And I've read stories of where kids who've ended up, even though they have families, they've ended up in orphanages, and instead of going to school, they're made to perform and dance and basically be there to somehow impress or gain the sympathy of Western visitors? Yes, this is something that is common. We go back to the fact that the system we've set up where essentially people need to see poor people parade themselves to be able to get money. So most, as you are right in saying, some of the children, I said, some of the children in orphanages are not orphans. Some of the children who are there are children with families, are children that have communities that can take care of them. But the reality is that if a child, for example, will go to an orphanage and money will come and that orphanage can be able to benefit and maybe give a little money to the family. In most cases, the family will opt to do that. So yes, I know 
several survivor leaders who ended up in orphanages, who ended up not going to school because they were either busy and, as you say, busy entertaining donors or busy sometimes working in farms or things that the orphanages owned. So it is a whole system that people are taking advantage of. What action, Sophie, is required of uh, national governments but also of the international community to stem this growth? Because it has been a terrible growth. Now 50 million people around the world in forced labour. What action is required? And need better social protection systems. For me, people are important. We cannot continue working the way we are so long as we continue taking away money and investment from our social protection systems that protect vulnerable children, that protect women and girls, that protect migrant communities. We leave them vulnerable, right? So things like free education are quite helpful because it means that if it is possible to detect when a child is not in school, it's possible for us to detect that, you know, they're being abused. But right now, if we don't have free education, if you see children, you have a, we have no reason to act during school hours. So free healthcare is something, healthcare is, is another thing that is important. Many of the migrant workers that I've worked with, the main reason why they ended up in risky situations is because a family member fell sick and all of a sudden they had a huge burden, a huge debt that they could not take care of. We definitely need governments to really focus on implementations of laws that already exist that can be able to hold either companies, anybody that is abusing people. And those laws need to be implemented. Sophie Etienne of the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. She's in Australia to launch a New South Wales government plan. This is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you'll hear about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. An increasingly common practice in India is the so-called dowry, the valuables a young woman's family must provide to her husband when they marry. But dowries are also behind a rising tide of violence against wives whose parents struggle to meet constant demands for money. For Manvir Singh, the issue became personal and tragic. It claimed the life of his cousin. Manvir is now an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. He tells his story in the current edition of The New Yorker. The data that I draw upon was showing that it is in about 80 to 90 percent of marriages. The dowry is illegal. It's been illegal since the 1960s. But nevertheless, it is a very prevalent practice, very often expected in marriages. The dowry is defined by a transfer of wealth from the bride's family to the groom's family, which is actually the opposite of what a lot of people are familiar with. What is more familiar to many people is this idea of a bride price, where essentially the groom's family kind of purchases the bride. But in dowry, it's the opposite. The bride's family actually, in addition to having the daughter move often away into the groom's family, they also have to transfer wealth. Typically, Manvir, what would a young man and his family expect a young woman to bring to a marriage via the dowry? It will very often involve cash. It can involve gold. It can involve 
furniture, cars, jewelry. I think historically, it was more common for there to be a diversity of goods. But increasingly, I think cash is a major component of it. But yeah, then that is often accompanied with these other consumer goods. Now, the consequence of a dowry is not just economic strain on a woman's family. From your very compelling article in The New Yorker, it can be much worse. Just how much worse? There are, I think, two really important consequences of dowry for women's status in particular. One is just the expectation of having to pay a dowry eventually can change the relationship between parents and their daughters. They essentially turn daughters into burdens. And India has worrying rates of sex-selective abortion and historically of female infanticide. As people will very often admit, that comes from the expectation of eventually having to pay a dowry. But then secondly, the fact that there is this expectation of resources being transferred from the bride's family to the groom's family often leads to, for lack of a better word, a kind of hostage negotiation. That's probably too strong, but essentially this idea that the groom's family can continue to demand resources to be transferred to them. And the bride's family is incentivized partly to maintain status, to maintain a good reputation in the community, but also because their daughter is now in this family and they need to keep that family happy. Yeah, and from what I can gather, Manvia, the daughter really does move to another family. What are the living arrangements normally after an Indian marriage that involves a dowry? India is incredibly diverse, but the prevailing residence arrangement after marriage and particularly the one most associated with dowry, is patrilocality, which simply means the bride living with the groom and his parents. One thing that really struck me about your piece was that your own family has been touched by the tragedy of dowry. Tell me about that story. In 2021, my cousin, my 40-year-old cousin, Neethi, who I know as Neethi Didi, passed away really suddenly. The story that we were told, so I was living in France, my parents are in the United States, so we were just getting information from my uncle and my other cousins in India, but the story we were told was that she had a heart attack. A couple days later, it turned out, according to the postmortem, that there were very strong indications that she had been strangled. When that postmortem came out, then we learned that there was actually a much more complicated story behind this marriage, which involved frequent and enduring requests for money jewelry, cars from the groom's family to my uncle, my cousin's father and his now deceased wife. It's still hard to know exactly what had happened. And in the piece, I want to acknowledge some uncertainty because after a death like this, there's a tug of war over narrative and over interpretation. But a lot of signs suggest that her death was one of these so-called dowry deaths, one of these deaths that results from these tussles over marriage payments. Manvia, did I read in your piece that as many as 50% of female homicides could be related to dowries? Yeah, there are numbers that actually the Indian government has produced, I believe, but that the UN has cited that estimate that between, yeah, 40 and 50% of female homicides in India are dowry deaths or are related to dowry. Your own mother did not suffer the worst consequences of the dowry system, but what happened to your own mother? Because you talk about her story as well. My mother was living in India. She was born in India and she went to university. And perhaps just after she graduated, her parents, who were living in Kashmir, she was going to school in Delhi, set up a marriage for her without her consent, partly because of the influence of a very important matchmaker 
and my mother met him and she did not want to get married to him. And she even told me that she threatened to kill herself. And my mother thinks so strongly of her father. And I also want to really respect the very strong feelings of love and adoration that she had for her father. But her father was, he lived in this social environment where he said, you have to marry this man. And she did. And she eventually moved to the States. And in the States, their relationship, my mother says, deteriorated even more and it became unbearable. And she decided to leave. And she successfully did leave, despite the pressure from her father to stay in that relationship. I told that story in the piece partly to just further illustrate or explore the ways in which women's options are are sometimes constrained. It's it's hard for them to leave these marriages, but also because the fact that my mom did successfully uh, leave this very unhappy marriage, I think helps us understand some of the social pressures that force women or, or really limit their ability to leave in India. You mentioned earlier, Manvia, that sex-selective abortions have increased dramatically, parents simply not wanting to have daughters. How does the broader economic system, though, also contribute to violence against women in much of South Asia? Well, historically and in many agrarian contexts today, there are certain agricultural systems that really favor having sons. When you have an agrarian economy that benefits from male-associated traits, particularly an economy like plow agriculture, that leads to a very strong male preference. And people are very clear about this. There was a story in our family where after Niti Didi gave birth to her first daughter, she apologized to her mother-in-law for having a daughter. And Niti Didi lived in an urban environment. They were not an agrarian family, but these historical processes continue to perpetuate themselves. This male bias has historically contributed to female infanticide, continues to contribute to sex-selective abortion. But then the male bias also leads to a system of dowry, which further exacerbates the perception of a woman as a burden. So even now, the the expectation that you will have to pay this dowry, I think, further incentivizes having a sex-selective abortion or aborting female fetuses. Yeah, just finally, I mean, you earlier made this point that dowry payments have gone from about 30% of marriages to close to universal today. Why does this persist and indeed grow in India? Because I've read some very impressive statistics about radically improved rates of literacy, school enrolment, university attendance by Indian women. Why would this persist today in the face of, of that good news? Uh, So this is a topic that economists have been debating for years. Why is it that in industrialization, in modernization, in growing affluence, we see both a spread of dowry and in some instances an actual inflation in real value? So two explanations that I've seen. One is that when you have an unequal society, a caste-structured society like India, and you have growing inequality, that further exacerbates a competition for these very high-quality men, which then just means you have a ramping up, essentially, of the price of those men or the dowry. So that's one explanation I've seen. Another explanation I've seen is that low-status families are now trying to use dowry, and particularly low-status families, low-caste families that now have access to economic capital are trying to use dowry payments to ascend caste hierarchies or to ascend status hierarchies. Manveer Singh, and we'll put a link to his article in The New Yorker at the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. And that's the show for this week. You can also find us using the search function at ABC Listen. 
Thanks to Hong Jang and Nathan Turnbull. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report.